Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Brusky and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action and welcome to another week from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Rebecca Lynch is with us. Rebecca is with the Wisconsin Working Families Party. Rebecca, good to see you. Good to be here. Thanks, Matt. All right. Good to have you. And as always, Robert Craig is with us. Robert is the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert. Good day, everyone. So, folks, we have a number of topics this week as we head into what appears to be finally summer. I looks like uh, the 80s and 90s are upon us, and we're breaking out of this frigid <laughs> spring we've had. So, folks, get out and enjoy it. But um, we have a number of topics. We are going to start by talking about uh, the Sterling Brown situation in Milwaukee in terms of his uh, uh, being prepared to sue the Milwaukee Police Department. Um, we're going to talk about Foxconn because there's news every week, and we'll get into the news that came out around uh, changes potentially at Foxconn. We're going to look at some new data that continues to show the disparity of job creation between Minnesota and Wisconsin. And we'll talk politics. There's always uh, news going on around our election season, so we'll get into that too. But hey, we are going to start by talking about the situation that has uh, occurred in Milwaukee. Um, Sterling Brown is a basketball player. He's a rookie. I suppose not a rookie anymore for the Milwaukee Bucks. And uh, in January, I uh, had an incident with the Milwaukee Police Department, and in that incident, uh, Sterling Brown had parked in a, a double parked in a, a handicap zone, but then gets into a confrontation with uh, the Milwaukee Police, and the video is out, and it's very clear that uh, uh, this gentleman had absolutely no reason to be tased, and that the police really escalated the situation. Um, but what I want to talk about is uh, obviously any of the, we can talk any about the specifics, but obviously the situation leads to the broader case of what we've been talking about in terms of uh, police interactions with uh, our community and communities of color and particularly African-American males. Um, Rebecca, I know this is something we've talked a lot about on the show, but your initial thoughts on the video, you've seen it, and uh, obviously any immediate uh, top takeaways or cons you know things you'd like to discuss um so the video is pretty clear if you watch it uh we have sterling brown a player for the milwaukee bucks who emerges from a 24-hour walgreens uh where he is parked outside in um two handicapped spots uh and there's a police officer there who is very agitated and throughout this video i think it's about uh, a half hour. Anyone yep. could look at online. You can kind minutes. of skip over a bit um, pretty easily on the version that I was watching. But uh, the police officer in question is increasingly agitated while Sterling Brown is the opposite, is really de-escalating, is pretty calm. Uh, the police officer is doing the opposite. Uh, more and more officers arrive. Uh, the situation gets heightened, but the but Sterling Brown does not get heightened. Like he remains very level, very calm, uh, and then really everything comes uh, to a climax when he has his hands in his pockets, standing there again, very calm. Uh, and they say, "Take your hands out of your pockets," and he says, "I don't want to take my hands out of my pockets. I have stuff in my pockets." Uh, and I think it doesn't take um, a detective to know why he was so hesitant to take his hands out of his pockets and kind of like the the history of what happens there. I mean, I, I imagine he seems very calm in the video, but it must have been terrifying oh. to be on a dark, you know, a dark parking lot surrounded by police officers who are very agitated and clearly not in control of their emotions. Um, and so uh, he gets tackled to the ground and then gets tased. 
And so all of this is on video. It's on body cameras. And so uh, folks are very upset and it raises just so many questions, right? What happens when there are no cameras? What happens when we don't have someone who's so famous and in many, in some, some ways privileged, you know, involved in this interaction. And it's really um, terrifying and upsetting. And I, you know, throughout the past couple weeks, uh, the city of Milwaukee had been preparing the community for this video to come out in an effort towards damage control, which is like, on the one hand, I understand why the city wants to, keep things calm but on the other hand that's not the same as making change so i on npr earlier this week before the video was live they had uh you know audio of one of the deputy um chiefs in a a church on the north side i think talking about hey this video is going to come out and we all need your support um well the community needs support as well yeah yeah no i when i heard that i was like um no we need to have a serious conversation that leads to real change (laughs) <laughs> we don't need just to support the police. But um, I, I want to get back. You're, it's terrifying when you see the situation and you see all the police gather around, right, and, and that no matter what, whether he deserved a ticket or not, that it would escalate like this is absolutely appalling and horrifying, right? And, and, and you mentioned the police officer mentions right away that the camera's on. So, like, he is a deep, from the beginning of the interaction, understanding that this is all being filmed and yet still engages in this behavior as if somehow this is justified. I I mean, this gets to this idea that somehow because you don't necessarily like the way the person is interacting with you um, or or that they aren't like completely compliant in a way that makes you satisfied as a police officer, that gives you the right to behave this way. I think that's what's so appalling about this. Uh, Sterling was actually quite, it seemed very brave in many ways right from the beginning, but then when he saw what was going on, he did de-escalate that situation. Um, so let's yeah, let's get to this broader situation, right? You mentioned, this is a very privileged guy, right? Milwaukee Bucks had the ability to do this, but yet still finds himself in this situation, which tells you exactly the lessons to the broader community, what everybody else is facing, uh, when you don't have the kind of resources to hire a good lawyer to be able to go and you know effectively go after the police for this kind of situation. Yeah, I think just to pick at something you just said just before, you know, it's so clear if you watch this video that a huge part of the issue that this police officer had was that Sterling was not being subservient. Yes, um, and the racial implications of that are just like really. Um, they're real and prevalent throughout our society, right? This idea that, you know, certain people, um, certain white people expect certain people of color to be subservient. It's really Mm -hmm. remarkable. And I almost think that the fact that Sterling is a successful pro ball player um, is, it made the enraged this cop even more, which is fascinating. Um, But to your point about the broader implications of this, uh, you know, I loved, I I found, I found it really, um, empowering how Sterling's statement was, I'm going to make this an example for other people to help lift up other people. Uh, and I think, you know, it's a shame. And then in the, in the Buck statement, you know, the owner of the Bucks put out a statement, um, you know, saying that they support Sterling, they stand with their player. And part of their statement was, it's a shame that, you know, when this happens to a pro athlete, that's when we start talking yep. about this issue. Yeah, no. And it, I mean, it's, it's part of the reality, you know, that he's famous, so he's going to get the attention but we need to use this to get to the broader change. And uh, before I go to Robert, um, shout out to Marquesa Tucker, who was so 
eloquent about this at a press conference about this has got to lead to something more, right? And let off, re- let off by reading just the list of just so many people in our community who've had just these horrible interactions. Um, Robert? I think that the, the critical thing is, is that we're only talking about this because it was a Milwaukee buck. Yep. And nothing in the reaction so far, despite all the apologies and sorrow, would indicate this wouldn't happen tonight. To a, to a low-income African-American man in Milwaukee who doesn't, who isn't, who's not a, a millionaire basketball player. And in fact, Chief Morales says that they were disciplined, it was inappropriate, doesn't say what the discipline was, doesn't say what was inappropriate, abruptly leaves after reading this brief statement, right? So what does that tell you? Uh, police officers, if you think about it, I mean, police is, I, I believe police is verging on with police and fire together, the biggest cost in the city, and a police officer costs a couple hundred thousand dollars when you look at benefits and uh, an escalated pension uh, called protective service pension, et cetera. You would expect these to be extremely disciplined professionals. And that's clearly not what's going on. It has to do with race, as uh, Rebecca was pointing out, but it has to do with our racialized system of mass incarceration, which it's an, it's an historical anomaly. It's only in this country. It's only been in this country since the 1970s. And we, we are simply uh, uh, imprisoning through over-policing and no other investment of any kind, other, other kind of harm reduction at all, unprecedented numbers of people. And Wisconsin's worse than other states. We have the highest rate of African-American incarceration, and that with segregation and economic conditions make Wisconsin and Milwaukee the worst place in the country to be African-American. Now, Governor Walker is really, really concerned about how millennials in, in Chicago, white millennials, upscale, feel about Wisconsin and advertises for them. He hasn't considered a problem uh, that literally this is the worst place to be an African-American. And so this kind of this is sort of like when you pick up a rock and you see all of the things running, running, run beneath the rock. This is like an, an opening where, because this was a Milwaukee buck, we're getting kind of a, a, a brief uh, kind of glimpse into it. But the problem is, is this has been happening year after year in this city, other cities, and the underlying pattern doesn't change because ultimately this is about putting everything into over-policing and incarcerating people and u- using physical force rather than at figuring out um, literally how we would create uh, prosperity and opportunity for everyone in this country and take on the horrendous racial disparities we have in this country. So we're going to take a break. We're going to continue this uh, conversation after the break. You are listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Uh, before the break, we had started a conversation about uh, Sterling Brown, and, and uh, his, he's prepared to sue the Milwaukee Police Department, but we are in a much deeper, broader conversation about, uh, Robert was talking about mass incarceration. Rebecca, I want to give you an opportunity to, to jump right in. Uh, yeah, you, you had mentioned before um, Marquesa Tucker from the African American Roundtable um, and her words last night. There's a quote um, that I'm just going to quickly read that kind of sums up where she ended after reading the list mm-hmm. of things that you had referred to. She said, this is not a case of bad apples, but an entire cart of bad apples that needs an entire overhaul and a culture shift. And she goes on to say, black people in Milwaukee will continue to live in fear, and these instances will continue to intensify the divide between MPD and community. So <clears throat> for me, I have like a really interesting perspective because I'm not originally from Wisconsin, and I just do not understand how our elected leaders, and, and in this case, the mayor, 
do get away with relatively few political consequences. And this is like one of like a drumbeat of things that have happened when it comes to police community relations over the last you know, several years, several months. I mean, at the press conference last night that uh, the African-American Roundtable had, you had Jared English from the ACLU there. The ACLU put out a damning study about MPD just a few months ago. And I wonder if part of the reason why there isn't more change um, and there isn't more fear among politicians and political consequences is the media. But there just doesn't really seem to be um, an amplification of these issues and the way that I experience and things are not perfect in New York by no means and the NYPD is in need of serious serious reform but it just is remarkable to me that uh, there's been so little change uh, and and you know we've had very uh, organized folks from the community coming out to say there needs to be change and yet there's so little change. Could, couldn't you go a little deeper into that part about the media right in terms of perceiving them as, as a critical barrier, right, to, to, to solving this issue, or at least starting to even address it, quite frankly, in a real way. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it's not great. I don't love the tabloid media in New York, but today the, co the remarkable cover of the New York Daily News is about the National Football League, and it has all of the names of black men and black people who have been killed by police, and it has a kneeling NFL player with a backdrop of an American flag. You know, and every day there is like a major publication that is um, accessible and affordable for the working class and available everywhere that is talking about issues through a racial justice lens. And it's tabloid-esque. So it go, you know, goes after the mayor. It goes after um, elected officials. And sometimes I strongly disagree with how they do it. But there's accountability there. And here, I just don't feel like there's that same reaction, that same accountability, that same lens. And even if it were to exist in the Journal Sentinel, how many people do we know um, across the city of Milwaukee who all read the Journal Sentinel, right? It's just like, it's a different way of getting news. Um, and I just think there's less political accountability. Now, there's other reasons why there's less accountability. Uh, you know, there's less competition, maybe, um, in whatever is happening at the upcoming mayor's race. Uh, I don't hear as much from local elected officials. I saw a lot of tweeting. Um, maybe they don't get as much oxygen in the press as they would elsewhere. But, you know, it's just remarkable to me. And, you know, it is a shame that we're having this conversation because, you know, a pro athlete was involved this time. But, you know, there have been so many issues and studies and incidents and protests and hearings. And, you know, there's no reason why um, there hasn't been more change on the city level with MPD. And no, I mean, there's been a lot of conversation. I mean, the conversation in this community is a very interesting take on the media. I think that's uh, different to New York has certainly ratcheted up over the last few years that we, there should be more progress. So I think your point is well taken, Robert. Yeah, and I want to point out the Milwaukee Police Association's uh, comments, which people look at, should look at, are particularly outrageous. And this is a union that supports Scott Walker, and I got to say that a really good union is actually interested in improving the standards of the profession it represents, not in uh, defending the worst elements of its profession, but they seem to be totally in the, in the retrograde place. They say that the use of force will well, we'll never look pretty, but it is unfortunately a necessary component of policing. They then claim that many of their members get injured in these uses of force, which are apparently necessary. And then they say that the problem is understaffing and that they need more staffing. And this is like single officers I gotta, responding. <laughs> Why didn't the officer 
a lot seemed to be quite available quite tons quickly. Tons of officers Why didn't the, the officer simply put a ticket on the windshield and walk away? And it's probably, I mean, two handicapped spaces got to be a $500 ticket, right? That's a, a major I mean, fine. what is, uh, so what is this about? So that they feel the need to defend it in this way rather than to, uh, to, to police their own profession is just shows how arrogant they are and shows why this problem persists. You know, and I want to follow up on that because what is shocking about the video is how many police officers are around and nobody like decided to de-escalate the situation, which is to me the most disturbing thing about this, right? And it gets back to the um, Marquesa's bad apples, not just one bad apple, the whole thing rots and it's a cultural thing, right? How not one other person could have been like, all right, guys, look, come on, look, this is ridiculous. Can we can we write the ticket and go, right? Like, I mean, what are, what are we all four of us standing around here for, right? It, it just escalating the situation, by the way, taking over a half hour, right, like to, to deal with a parking ticket. And just to play it out, right, uh, you know, occasionally, very small percentage, a, a teacher does something that is outrageous, right? You don't see the teachers' unions coming forward and defending the action, now they may they'll give the teacher due process as far as making sure if they're if they're being terminated that there's a fair settlement because everyone deserves due process, but there's no recognition there's a problem here from the Malaki Police Association none, they're all in their little cocoon and they want more police when the problem is too much police and too little of all the other investments we need to make. Problem is too much police. Uh, the problem is obviously like you know, pre prevalent racism uh, at, at every level. But another thing that strikes me with Sterling Brown that we also saw with Alton Sterling that we see in so many of these cases are uh, police officers who are just like filled with fear and just like, I, I don't, th there need to be like constant updated psychological exams for people who are allowed to open carry guns in my community. Like I don't want um. someone who is so afraid with, with their hand on a trigger it just, I mean, it really frightens me, and it should frighten a lot of people. And if you have a policing model that appears to, I mean, people, some experts can, can write me and tell me otherwise, seems to actually cause dangerous confrontations. So if you're literally going around, you know, a poor community, any community for that matter, and stirring things up and causing confrontations, then you're fearful because there are confrontations, of course, it's, of course, it, and so you're right. Uh, there's bigger trauma for people who live in over-police communities, but the police, because of mass incarceration, are facing trauma as well. So I think that's a great point, Rebecca. Uh, so, you know, one of the things that I think would be interesting for us to talk about um, for the rest of the segment is what um, the listeners to this podcast and this radio show, particularly Citizen Action members, can and should be doing. Uh, and I just wanted to point out, and I actually haven't reached out to our Wisconsin Revolution about this, but I saw on a candidate's Instagram yesterday that they had filled out some kind of checkbox of issues. Um, and one of the issues was support for police and fire. And I think that we really need to, in all of our communities, change the conversation. I think, you know, what Robert said uh, is something that is um, well documented, right? That more police does not make us more safe. And it's certainly, you know, we have to have the conversation of safe for whom. And I think that it is on us, um, particularly those of us, I, I am white, those of us who are white, to have these conversations with other activists, with our families, with elected officials, um, and I think, you know, to my point earlier about how, how is there not more accountability for the politicians who are involved? I think we need to be part of creating that accountability. I don't know if 
uh, Matt or Robert, you have any thoughts on that? I completely agree, and it has to lead to structural reform. It can't, it's not, this is why Marquesa Tucker's comment is important. When she says a whole barrel of bad apples, the way to say that's a bad system, okay? And so if you just say it's one officer did the wrong thing, you're missing the point. And you also need to have constructive solutions. You can't just say, you know, we do need to dramatically reduce poverty, but that will take time. But there are, in addition to actually expanding opportunity, not doing Foxconn, but investing in the most impoverished communities, direct public health style interactions you can make. For example, the, the head of the public defenders off Milwaukee uh, says specifically that we should treat each first interaction of a young man of any race as a public health issue intervene in not in a criminal justice way, but in a social work way to figure out what's going on and to address the problem. And start and you and so you often see in TV, this offender was arrested five times from when they were 16 and 18, then they commit this heinous crime. What was happening in all of those previous interactions and why weren't we actually doing something to address the problem? In fact, the interactions criminal justice system and these police make the problem worse. Well, we talked about trauma before there's been a lot of research about how many of these kids are suffering from significant trauma from a whole host of things they're experiencing, right? So these initial interactions, a lot of that is going to manifest itself and it actually needs to be treated from a medical health perspective as opposed to just strictly a criminal incarceration approach. And that is not something we're doing and that has to be part of the systemic change. It's a lot cheaper. And yeah. I would just say super quick, because I know yeah. we have to go. I think that this is something we need to prioritize in our work, in our conversations. And, you know, there was a great press conference yesterday of the African-American Roundtable. But, like, this is not just a black Milwaukee issue. Yeah. This is a Wisconsin issue, and we all need to stand up. With that, we, we, we do have to take a break. You are listening to The Battleground Wisconsin, and we are Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are going to talk about some state-level politics, which means we're going to talk Foxconn. So it is uh, Thursday morning, and um, much news has already happened this week as it relates to Foxconn, and the big news this week was that uh, a, uh, a, a trade uh, magazine or newspaper, I think from, uh, from, from Taiwan, I'm not sure where, came out on Wednesday morning, early Wednesday, with a report that Foxconn was going to downsize or lessen its uh, $10 billion investment in Wisconsin. Um, this got immediate, <laughs> immediate attention, right, uh, given the massive investment of public resources. And it didn't take very long for Foxconn to come out and say that this wasn't true, that they are still remain deeply invested uh, to this $10 billion investment, but that there's going to be a change. They're altering... Uh, it looks like the kind of screens that they'll be producing because there's a glut of large TV screens. Won't get into the details. Uh, we'll have links with great detail about the different kinds of screens, but long and short of it is apparently there's a glut in large, giant TV screens, and there's a big need for smaller ones, and so they're going to change uh, what they're producing potentially. But the other kicker is... We didn't have a supply chain here in Wisconsin or the surrounding region that was able to support the production of these bigger TV screens. So the reason I want to talk about this is not that somehow all of this is true, it's happening, right? But clearly, how unstable 
is this project, right? Like it just goes to go back to the exact points we were making about why Foxconn is such uh, a problem. Who would like to jump in? You both look like you're eager to go. Robert, uh, let's get your thoughts first uh, on this and w what it all means. Well, remember, uh, even if you believe in this thing, which is hard to do unless you, you're just out to support Scott Walker, um, it's supposed to pay for itself in 30 years. Uh, the business model can't even stay sit the same before they've even built it, yep. right? We're already having denials that they're somehow... Now, it would seem like a change of the business model if you're manufacturing a totally different thing, and, if they're, and it would seem to refute much of... Scott Walker and the WMC's claims that it's going to be a great boon to the rest of Wisconsin through this supply chain, right? And so then you have the Foxconn denials, which you can, you know, the denials are about they want to draw down the money, right? So, of course, they need to deny this, but it shouldn't be treated seriously. Governor Walker expects to be gone before this ever comes to roost, but at this point, if he's reelected then it, this may all come unraveled in his next term, actually. Hopefully there is oh, no Robert, this third term of oh, Scott Walker, woo, but it, oh. we should be, that should motivate us to Sign prevent up, that folks, volunteer. from happening. <laughs> and remember, and this is why I want to say to all of our gubernatorial candidates, some of whom are saying that, that we can't unwind the Foxconn contract, that we make manufacturing uh, tax-free in Wisconsin, thanks to Walker. It's a huge three-quarters of a billion dollar giveaway. Uh, and so literally, if you whirled that back and went back to taxing it, you would take away a good third of the Foxconn subsidy. So there's a way to claw the money back. Uh, but this is just showing how much a disaster it is to put all of our eggs into, with, into one corporation, one deal cut by an incompetent administration. It was led the negotiations by Wait for it, of course, you know, by, by WEDEC, right? And the CEO of WEDEC negotiated this brilliant deal. There you have it. Robert says, don't put all your eggs in the Foxconn hen house. <laughs> oh, well, Rebecca, you're next. Um, so I just want to let folks know that next week on May 30th, uh, from 6 p.m. to 8.30 p.m., we have a gubernatorial forum for the Wisconsin's Choice Project in Racine. Yeah, I bet this will come up. This is going to come up. And uh, one of the folks who's going to be asking a question is a woman who's being evicted by the Foxconn Project in her dream home that spent nine years her and her husband designing and building. And they just moved in in February. And their 12-year-old daughter cried when she was told they were going to have to move. Well, they do live in a blighted area after all, right? Right, right. So-called blighted area. So to Robert's point, you know, to our, um, you know, gubernatorial challengers to the Walker agenda, you know, you've got to do something for this family, for all of these workers, for our entire economy. Uh, don't say it's a done deal. You know, you got to you if you are running to be the leader of our state and you got to rescue us from this like really horrible deal that is, is going to hurt a lot of people. Um, you know, I, I think how I feel about Foxconn is how I felt about Foxconn for a while. It's almost like dystopian. It's really remarkable. Like it just gets worse and worse and worse. And it's, it is like a running joke on the podcast that we have something to talk about every week. It's, but it's unbelievable. It's, it's not funny anymore. It's so <laughs> weird. Like, yeah. It's, it's uh, uh, yesterday I it was super busy and all of a sudden I was going by my computer and I saw the breaking news that all this had been going on for a few hours and I started reading. I was like, Oh my God, geez, it's just every week. It is something, Robert. And a shout out to Democratic Assembly Leader Gordon Hintz. Nice to have a Democratic Assembly Leader who actually opposes the Foxconn deal. 
uh, who not only put out a strong statement, pointed out that they're already changing the business model and the whole thing's based on large LC screens, we should be very worried, but also says very specifically that this is, this is I think, the right framing of it, that Foxconn now calls all the shots for us economically because we have put all of this money into Foxconn and now they can just, you can see what a great deal this is, completely change the business model and what they're going to produce and we just hear about it in a in a Taiwanese business journal. And all the defenders of Walker in the media are out there quickly just sort of aping what what Foxconn has to say. And of course it it's true. Oh, don't believe any of this possible reporting, right? Like you even see it in some of the local press coverage, right? Like they're so, they were so quick to get those stories out about, oh no, 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 don't worry, don't worry, everything's okay, right? The Foxconn train is trug is chugging on. So yeah, no, I, I agree, Robert. It, it, it's very important. It, imagine, right? Remember, folks, Peter Barker lost his his, his speakership over, over this issue, right? So it was very important to have someone like Gordon Hintz out speaking against us. Could you imagine if Peter was still there? We would not have had that, and we would have had more sort of half defenses of this. I'm sure... He would, he's concerned, but it would have been largely a defense of the project. And, and can I say another bit of news this week, um, you know, about uh, the Trump and kind of like Walker-ish agenda uh, and tax cuts and corporations came out of Harley-Davidson. And so we saw a strong, speaking of elected officials in Southeast Wisconsin, we saw a strong statement from Randy Bryce, who's the Working Families Party endorsed candidate for um, that seat originally to take out Paul Ryan. We succeeded in that. Now we just got to get Randy in. <laughs> but, um, you know, Har Harley uh, is using Trump tax cuts to downsize, not in Wisconsin, but elsewhere. And, with, and, and Harley Davidson is where Walker and Trump went to tout their, to, well, I guess Paul Ryan went to tout the tax cuts. And so, you know, this is more of the same. I think we saw this with Kimberly Clark. Yes. Uh, and I, I think Foxconn, you know, we talk about because it's it's so egregious and it's our home base. But across the board in Trump's America and Walker's Wisconsin, what we're seeing are these giveaways to corporations being used to actually downsize jobs, make them lower paying jobs, non-union jobs and hurting our communities. And it's uh, based on the contradiction. There's the heart of the problem with right wing ideology and unfortunately a fair amount of centrist democratic ideology. And that is that what's good for a corporation is good for us and good for prosperity. The modern corporation, this is since the 80s, since a right-wing Supreme Court decision under Reagan, uh, a modern corporation only seeks shareholder value. And of course, the uh, management of companies all ha are full up with t stock options, so they're conflicted. And they don't care about anything else. And so if you just give them giant tax cuts, if it makes more sense to increase shareholder value to use the money, use it to downsize, as Kimberly Clark's done, and as Rebecca was saying, so is Harley Davidson, they will do so. So what does that mean? It means that it, with public leverage, we need to make investments that actually create prosperity for us and actually raise wages and get, and get money to move in the community where people have money in their pockets and they can spend it, period. And that mean, that and so if there's a major investment we, we need to make, which we do in clean energy and renewable energy, and there are corporations involved in that, that's fine. But it all has to be tied down directly to public benefit. And they don't get that. Their anti-government attitude is not about not helping uh, giving our money away. It's about having any kind of democratic control over the purpose of our own money. So speaking of democratic control, before we go to break, I want to quickly bring up a topic, and that's your democratic rights within the workplace. Um, there was a very important Supreme Court ruling this week, uh, Epic Systems, which is a very f famous, popular 
uh, company here in Wisconsin um, by a five to four ruling this week, uh, basically weakening workplace workplace protections and your ability to uh, file class action or large uh, lawsuits. Um, Robert or Rebecca, any any thoughts on this before we go to break? I mean, this is actually huge news in terms of the kinds of protections and the ability of people to actually um, have any, any fair grievance in the workplace. So this is very much like the 19th century where big robber barons dominated American law. So not only can you have these forced arbitration decisions that take away people's fundamental rights that go back before the Constitution, the right to your day in court, right, the whole civil justice system, uh, you can, according to the Supreme Court, make it so each individual has to bring their own case individually, which makes it virtually impossible. In fact, the court, right-wing judges only care about theoretical rights for average people, practical rights right. for big corporations. That's right. And so it's very much like Plessy versus Ferguson. Remember, that was separate but equal. So that's a nice legal doctrine that says educations and everything else, all combinations are going to be equal, but then they don't, aren't serious about the equal part. It's just on paper, right? So this is the same way. Technically, each person has this ability to, to, to do this arbitration, but practically speaking, they don't. No loyalty. And corporations have all the control. So they don't even look. This is the difference between a liberal judge and a right-wing judge. A liberal judge looks at the actual consequence of law. A right-wing judge, when they're talking about individual rights, only cares about a formality that gives the appearance of a legal right but doesn't actually give it against entrenched economic power. We got to take a break. Rebecca, you're going to we're going to hear from you right when we get back on this important issue. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin. Before we went to break, we were in a great discussion of the Supreme Court ruling this week and Rebecca, you were just about to say something, so have at it. Um so completely agree with everything we said in the last segment. Um, you know, I think the idea that a worker can get due process through forced arbitration would let's say that worker has been cheated out of $200, $500, that they could then have the resources to even get by, let alone go through this process is laughable. Um, so I totally agree with Robert on that. The second thing is uh, the right, um, including these corporations, got their money's worth when they spent millions of dollars to get Neil Gorsuch in, and he delivered big time. And, uh, you know, it is so obvious and clear what's happening, and it's really um, frightening, but that that's what's happening to our country. The third thing is... Um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, delivered her dissent from the bench, which is like a little bit unusual. And I just wanted to read, if that's okay, Go for okay. It, yeah. um, a, a little bit of what she said. And this speaks to Robert's point um, earlier that, you know, the right wing approach here is all theoretical. It's not based in the real world, but we all live in the real world. <laughs> and so um, she said a couple of insightful things, but one of them was, quote, once again, the court ignores the reality that sparked the National Labor Relations Act's passage. Forced to face their employers without company, employers ordinarily are no match for the enterprise that hires them. Employees gain strength, however, if they deal with their employers in numbers. That is the very reason why the NLRA secures against employer interference of employees' rights to act in concert for their, quote, mutual aid or protection. It goes on, but, like, that's the point of unions. Yeah. And, you know, this... The, the forced arbitration rule, I mean, without getting into the weeds, predates uh, the rise. And, and, and RBG mentions this in her dissent, right? Predates the rise of unions. And now we live in a world where we have very powerful companies, powerless employees, unless they join together in unions. And so um, it's it, this is 
what, what, what's really upsetting about this is that it's going to have such an impact on individuals um, and 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 people to fight back against the injustice in their workplace. Well, remember the fundamental element of the right wing conspiracy in Nancy McLean's uh, book, uh, Democracy in Chains, highlights this: is to strengthen the power, the rights of the very rich and large corporations, and to strangle democracy. Okay, in democracy, I don't just mean elections. I mean the ability of all of us together to determine our own destiny. It's about, you know, the will of the people, the popular strength. And so this is another way to simply disempower individuals and make them serfs, essentially, of large corporations. It's that simple. And so when they're defending individuals, right-wing judges, who claim they're strict uh, interpreters of the Constitution, except the Constitution in the 18th century always comes out to mean uh, early 21st century right-wing dogma, imagine that. Um, it's all theoretical when it comes to our rights. When it comes to corporate rights, it's way not, it's not theoretical at all, it's practical. It's we're going to get rid of all campaign finance regulations and say that the First Amendment meant corporate, unlimited corporate speech on the, on the airwaves through mass communication, spending billions of dollars, which couldn't have been conceived when the, when the First Amendment was written in the 18th century. So what does that have to do with some sort of strict construction? That, that's a lie, too. So it's very much like Plessy versus Ferguson. You know, if they'd actually enforced equal part, separate but equal, we'd be, a, we'd be in a better society. It would be unfair and segregation's horrendous, but we would have equal schools, right? But they weren't serious about that. It was only theoretical. But practically speaking, uh, they gave the South full sway to impose Jim Crow and all of its, its evil. You know, when um, a colleague of mine sent me the article when it came out and it was breaking news that the Supreme Court made this decision, their commentary on it was this essentially just paves the way for Janice. And so I think what yep. we're going to see, you know, out of the Gorsuch Supreme Court uh, is, you know, the, the, a bad Janice and decision. And Janice is the decision which, which basically is right to work for uh, public employee unions that expected to come out, given that the the cowardly nature of the U.S. Supreme Court, probably just before they all head to the uh, to their various vacation homes, well, their, that, la their last their last ruling, so they can then disappear. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. I wanted it to be a preview that you can expect. We'll be talking about this in about a month. It usually is in June, July, third week yep, of June or so. Right before yeah. they go out, we get all the hearings, and we expect Janice to be in there. And these two, these are quite the punch, right? You know, the ability, uh, as Robert said, with this one and the next one will take away your collective association rights um, fun functionally. With that, though, I, I do want to bring up uh, one, at least get another topic in here. Um, well, Actually, we do have to mention the political stuff. I, I, I wanted to mention a report about Minnesota and Wisconsin on jobs. Maybe we'll get to that, but we, we do like politics, and um, we have to mention some news this week, uh, particularly here in Milwaukee, but it has statewide imports, and that is uh, State Rep. Leon Young uh, decided he is not going to run for re-election. Pretty late. We only got about a week left to gather signatures, but don't fear, folks. Somebody was ready to step in. Rebecca, give us more listeners more details about Assembly District 16 and, and why it matters. Um, we had a so-called Democrat in Leon Young um, Ooh, ouch. <laughs> who, who, you know, um, couldn't happen to a nicer guy that he was facing a real challenge for his race. Um, County Supervisor uh, Suprema Kunde Moore uh, 
stepped in to run for that seat after I think Leon was kicked out of the Democratic caucus. In um, March, he yeah. was he lost his some of his positions. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, he, he carried a lot of water for Chris Abley, who's our county executive, who's been trying to um, dismantle our county board, but also for Republicans. Um, and, you know, in in facing a strong um, a strong challenge from Supervisor Moore um, decided that he might as well just sit it out. And so I think that is a great, um, you know, out with someone who is not a champion of the people and in with someone who really is. So it's an exciting development. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, Representative Young is a liberal enough guy and fun to talk to. He just wasn't a very active legislator. And uh, Leader Hintz even stripped him of his committee assignments. So it's been time for, for, for Representative Young to go for a long time. But, you know, he, he's certainly a, a decent fellow and a progressive guy. But... This community, um, this is one of the poorest communities in the country, needs very vigorous leadership. So I think uh, uh, Supreme would, will do a great job and will, will greatly increase the amount of advocacy that this very underserved community and, and impoverished community requires. Um, and I really think, quite frankly, we really, in general, it's not just African-American districts. We really do need to, ha to, to hold our elected officials to a higher standard. If someone is fortunate enough to serve in the state assembly, they need to take seriously that they take on the responsibility for all the people they represent to defend and turn around this state. And I, you know, there, I, there are some excellent state representatives who absolutely are paragons of that. I don't want to start listing them because I'll miss someone. But there are, and I don't, I'm not going to name the bad ones, a oh, number that on. are, shall we say, le less, less than inspiring. And unfortunately, however he might start his career, I, don't, I wasn't around when he did. Representative Young was not an inspiring leader uh, for at least the last decade. It was very diplomatic. <coughs> Supreme is going to be great. Yeah, so uh, it, it is important for Milwaukee uh, to have that a a advocacy. So... Um, anyways, uh, I do. It does give us some time to be able to get to uh, this this important data that came out. Oh, can we quickly oh, yeah, while sure. we're on politics just yeah, yeah. the governor's race really quick? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, the big news out of the governor's race this week is oh, as yes. um, nominating signatures that period comes to a close. They're due June first. Kathleen Vinehout is doubling down and running for governor and not running for her seat um, uh, for re-election. And then uh, Malin Mitchell just got the endorsement of the Wisconsin AFL-CIO. So I just wanted to mention those two things. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. It's good to make sure the latest news is covered. Uh, and you're right, uh, Kathleen did. Uh, sh she actually put in the papers to not run for Senate, which is people have been waiting for. Uh, not sure. So that is uh, final news. So thank you for bringing that up. Uh, before we go, though, uh, Robert has another thing. We may not get to this final topic. Go, Robert. No, no, I was just telling you there are two minutes left. Oh, you were just telling me there's two minutes. Thank you. I, I was aware of that, but I do appreciate the help. So um, before we go, uh, we want to talk about some new data that came out this week uh, comparing Minnesota and Wisconsin on jobs, and it comes from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. And by the way, these, this data is that data that we have often called the gold standard uh, in terms of our jobs data. What it found was that Minnesota had more jobs in Wisconsin in 2017 for the first time in recent history. Um, and in particular, it also found that this has been going on consistently now for 10 years, every year seeing an increase, which is quite shocking and surprising, not, not to us in terms of what we've been experiencing from a policy uh, perspective, but 
a lot of economists and the researchers say this is stunning that you would see this kind of consistent uh, data in just separation between two neighboring and similar states. So just quickly, I know we're almost out of time. The Institute for Pol uh, po uh, the, the Economic Policy Institute, excuse me, EPI, had a similar report a couple of weeks ago. And what's interesting about Wisconsin and Minnesota is not only they're similarly sized states that have a lot of other similarities, but you have a perfect Petri dish because you had Governor Mark Dayton taking over at the same time that Governor Scott Walker did and had a progressive agenda raising taxes on corporations and the wealthy to make investments versus Walker, uh, lower wages, take money away from public employees and, and all union employees and disinvest and give huge tax cuts to wealthy and corporations agenda. And there have been stark differences. In fact, we can put in the battleground Wisconsin section of the website an American Prospect article that we're quoted in if you want to get more of my thoughts and Citizen Action's thoughts on how significant and profound this research is. You know, real quick before we go, the one thing that's really important about this data, especially given the low unemployment rates now, what it means is it makes it very difficult for Wisconsin to get out of this box. In some ways, this has to do with are people flowing into your community too? Are there workers? Are you creating an attractive place? Is this a place workers want to be or are they exiting? So he are can tout worker, low unemployment rates, but he's in a box now. Are there workers in, with money in their pockets to spend in their communities That's and right. create economic multipliers? Yep. And he, their whole economic theory of Walker is profoundly wrong, but it's a good campaign bribe, which is what the basis for his reelection is. Yeah, and speaking of that, don't forget to uh, put in your order for your $100 campaign bribes with per the state. For child. For child, yeah. That's right, only if you breed. With that, we've got to go. We're the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We want to thank Brian Wilbridge, our producer, who makes it happen every week. And we will see you next week.